Who do you like? Who do you care for? Who do you love? A spouse, a child, a grandchild? Is it a coworker, an employer, a next-door neighbor? Now think about the person or persons by name who you have an affinity and affection for. What do you want for that one and those ones? What is it that you would love for them to have? I'll bet it's this, the best, the very best. That would be the indicator of your affection for that person. You unselfishly want the best for that particular person, that child, that grandchild, that other loved one. And when that one settles for less than the best, something happens in you. It isn't that your love for that person is diminished. It continues, but so too does your grief. You grieve, for though your love will be sustained for that person, you know that person, in settling for less than the best, has forfeited certain things that that person would otherwise really be blessed to have. And if that's you and that's me, how much more Creator God, especially the one who saved many in here. This is his response to us. He loves us and will not let us go. He loves us with an everlasting and unconditional love. Because he loves us, he wants for each of us to have his very best. And when we make choices to settle for less than his best, he does not cease to love us, but he grieves because we lose. And it cannot, in some cases, ever be recouped that which we lost. Well, there's an episode, and it's recorded for us down to this very day in this marvelous book we've been traipsing through, Numbers. It's Numbers chapter 32. And there's a specific incident in this chapter in which this very, very sad reality is revealed to us, a people group uh, who had the Lord's affection and for whom he cared, made a choice. They settled for God's lust, and there were very serious and irreversible consequences, and we get to read a little bit about it. So look at verse 1, Numbers chapter 32, with me. Here's what it says. Now the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad, two of the... How many tribes in Israel? Yeah, so these are two of the 12 tribes. They had an exceedingly large number of livestock, which is quite remarkable. Forty years prior to this, they were slaves. For the last 40 years, they were in the wilderness, wandering in many cases in circles, making lots of mistakes, making terribly bad choices. And now they're in view of the promised land. Wilderness journey has come to an end, and they're about to come into their inheritance. And all through the wilderness wanderings, God provided to such an extent that these two tribes had more livestock than they could handle. And so when they saw the land of Jazer and Gilead, uh, those, are, those are parcels of land in modern-day Jordan. They would be located to the east of the Jordan River. So if you think of the Jordan River as a, as a north-south body of water, uh, to the east of it is modern-day Jordan, and these areas are there. The Israelites, on their journey through the wilderness and onto the Promised Land, 
had engaged people groups in this area who assaulted them, and God gave them the victory. And so, well, these two tribes, Gad and Reuben, are thinking we got a lot of livestock, and we already dealt with the people in this particular land, and it's pretty good land. It says it was a suitable place for livestock. See, it's elevated, wide open, very fertile because it gets lots of rain there down to this very day. Well, when they saw all this, the sons of Gad and Reuben came and spoke to Moses and Eliezer, leaders of the people, Eliezer being the priest, and to the leaders of the congregation, and they said, and then they mentioned these little places, these municipalities in the area. The land, it says, which the Lord conquered before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock. Moses, Eliezer, what a good place for livestock. And you see, we got lots. They said, these two tribes, they said, if we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants as a possession. Do not take us across the Jordan. Does your translation say that? So it's not just mine, right? I was hoping it was just mine and that was a typographical error or something. Did they really make this request? Did these people who had been enslaved, who cried out to God, who appealed to his mercy for they had no inherent merits of their own, did these people who received magnificent deliverance and the watch care of God through 40 years of ups and downs in their behavior, lots of disobedience and all grumbling and complaining, did this people group on the verge of entering into their place of promise, did they actually say, don't take us across the Jordan? Am I reading this? That's exactly where God intended to take them. They were opting out. They were, they were making a shocking request of Moses, and Moses was shocked, I think, and not happy. And so he said in verse 4, it says, But Moses said to the sons of Gad and of Reuben, Shall your brothers go to war while you yourselves sit here? Moses said, your attitude is selfish. There is the land of promise, but there are people there who pose resistance. We must deal with it. Would you have your brothers go to war with? This is selfish. And then Moses said in verse 7, why are you discouraging the sons of Israel from crossing over into the land which the Lord has given? This is selfish, Moses said. And Moses said, this is discouraging. And what's more, verse 8, this is what your fathers did. Your attitude is selfish. Your attitude is discouraging the others. And your attitude reflects the same pattern of uh, uh, fearfulness and lack of faith in Almighty God, which was characteristic of your fathers. And you should have learned from them because they all perished in the wilderness. That whole generation is not going to make it into the land of promise. You're repeating their attitudes. This is what your fathers did when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. Remember? God said, sent folks on an espionage mission, and the majority view was, we, it's really great land, milk and honey and all this stuff, but also lots of people, big people, chariots, fortresses, we're like grasshoppers, we can't go. And, and the predecessors of these people in Numbers 32 said, you're right, we can't, we're not going. Well, thank you, God, but no thank you, we'll stay right here. And now their sons... That is to say, these tribes of Gad and Reuben are essentially saying the same thing. We're in sight of the promised land, 
but it's going to be really tough. There's resistance. It's a tough road to travel, and this land is pretty cool for us. Thank you, God, for wanting us to have your best, but we're willing to settle for less. It's just like what their father did. And Moses said, don't you realize your decision will have a negative impact on everybody else in the community of faith? Look, verse 15. For if you turn away from following him, he will once more abandon them in the wilderness, and you'll destroy all these people. (laughs) What you are about to do, in essence, Moses says, will impact this way on the others. They will see your decision. They will see that you've decided not to cross over the Jordan into the land of promise, they will become discouraged by what you're doing. And in their discouragement, they will be encouraged to make the same choice. They won't come into their place of promise either. And God's anger will be aroused as it had hitherto been aroused, and they will wander again aimlessly in the wilderness until they all perish. Moses said, don't you realize your selfish decision to settle for less will have this terrible effect on the entire congregation. That's what Moses said. Well, verse 16, they came near to him. They said, look, we're going to build sheepfolds for our livestock, cities for our little kids, but we're going to be armed and ready to go before the sons of Israel until we brought them, the other tribes, to their place. While our little ones live here in fortified cities. We, we, We won't return to our homes until every one of the sons of Israel has possessed his inheritance. For we will not have an inheritance with them on the other side of the Jordan and beyond because our inheritance have, has fallen to us on this side of the Jordan towards the east. They are out of bounds, folks. That's not the land of promise. They are out of bounds. God set geographical boundaries to the land of promise. This is out of it. They said, we'll help you guys settle there. We want to stay here even though this may not be as good here as what you're going to get there, we're willing to settle for what's here rather than wait on what's there. And based on their insistence, and by the way, this is a biblical principle, folks. Insist on something before God, and he will let you ultimately have it. Insist on something out of bounds. Insist on settling for less. And he will let you have it that you may learn from it. So Moses relents based on their insistence and gives them what they wanted. Verse 33, Moses gave to them, to the sons of Gad and the sons of Reuben. And here now you have the half-tribe of Manasseh. We say Manasseh. So you've got two and a half tribes in this little deal. Uh, Moses gave to them the kingdom of Sihon, king of the Amorites, king, kingdom of Og, king of Bashan, the land with its cities, territories, and surrounding land, all those territories in modern-day Jordan. So that's what happened. Father knows best. Father knows best. <clears throat> And our Father wants us, his kids, to have his best. Do you know that about him? Come speak with us. Let us pray with you and chat with you if you're doubtful.
Don't be ashamed. If you're doubtful, let's talk. Because here's the truth. Father knows best. And Father wants his kids to have his best. And it grieves the Father when his kids, like these two and a half tribes, settle for less than his best. And we, like they, are prone to do so. There's something in us that drives us to it. This isn't about Israel and their nature. This is about human nature. Numbers 32 is simply a mirror, and it's not a pretty reflection when you look into it. This is us. There's a proneness to settle for less than God's best. Why? Well, because we make decisions often based upon what we see in the world rather than what we read in the Word. There it is. Even God's people, redeemed, delivered, saved, born anew, Christian people, are prone to make decisions on the basis of what we see in the world as opposed to what we have read in the Word. We do the same thing these people did. Let me remind you of verse 1 again. The sons of Reuben, Gad, had an exceedingly large number of livestock. So when they saw, when they saw the land of Jazer and Gilead, that it was indeed a place suitable for livestock. They made a choice based upon what they saw in the world as opposed to what they had heard previously from God. They were out of bounds. According to God's word, they didn't seem to care because they saw that the land was good. You want to know something? It's always been this way from the beginning of time. First book of the Bible, Genesis. God provides the most wonderful environment. It was paradise for folk. He gave them one restriction. You remember what it is. Don't eat from the fruit of this tree. Let me read to you Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. Now, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes... And that the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. God said, don't eat from this tree, for eating from this tree is out of bounds for you. And they ate from it. And we've been in a mess ever since. They saw something about it. They had needs, they're human. And they envisioned that they could, in settling for the fruit from this tree, have those needs met. They saw that it could, in spite of what God said, satisfy them. They saw that it could make them wise, and they, they saw that it looked good, and they found it to be a delight to the eyes, and so they settled for it. And folks, so too has humankind Ever since, human nature has remained the same. Even the nature of Christians, sadly, too often. It is our nature to choose what looks good in the world in spite of the fact 
that it is out of bounds for us according to the Word of God. There is this sinful inclination in us, and if you're not aware of it, one I know of is, and that is Satan. And so he moves in taking advantage of the momentum provided by our inclination to settle for less, and he provides substitutes for every one of our legitimate human needs. He provides substitutes for peace, good night, the leaders of the world. I go crazy when I think about the four entities trying to broker peace in the Middle East. Are you joking with me? The United States, the United Nations, the European Union, and Russia? Am I, am I missing? Talk about the fox in the chicken coop. Are you kidding? substitutes for peace that only the Lord Jesus can provide. The enemy stands ready to provide ready, visible, noticeable to us for satisfaction of needs. Today, people expend much, much more money on leisure and recreation pursuits, Christians even, than on the Great Commission. Substitutes, you see? You don't want to blame everything on Satan. All he's doing is capitalizing on what's already there. My willingness to settle for less, to settle for substitutes. So there's Satan providing ready substitutes for things like self-control, all kinds of humanistic approaches for, for, for hope. Good night. The one thing the politicians today have, it's quite a fascinating thing to watch the whole process, which I support, uh, but the one thing each of these very uh, diverse politicians has in common is that they make promises there's no way they can keep. Now, I'm not saying they're lying. It's worse than lying. A lie is a deliberate misstatement. I think a lot of these people actually are fooled into thinking they can pull off what they're saying. Are you kidding me? They can't be substitutes for the Savior. Why are you acting like it? So Satan stands ready to provide substitutes for love. So we look for love in all the wrong places. Relationships we're in that we should not be in. All manner of things, you see. Why? Because even God's people seems to have a proclivity, a willingness to settle for less. It's very difficult for us folks because... Uh, we live in a world filled with noticeable pleasures. I've been trying to eat a little better, and I was watching TV the other day, and good night, this big old juicy burger and fries. My wife gave me an apple. It's really, really tough to try to wait on the best, because we live in a world filled with noticeable pleasures as substitutes. And so it's our tendency to settle, it's just the way it is, for a noticeable pleasure rather than to wait for a not yet noticeable place of blessing. If we were to go through here and go down person by person and say, give us an illustration of a time when you chose something which you found out not too long thereafter was really, really, really something you should not have chosen to do. 
Many of us could say that. We settled because we have lost the discipline of waiting on God, and we're all addicted to immediate gratification. I see it. I need it. I want it. I shall have it now. It's tough. The eyes lead us to it because it's on our heart to settle for less than God's best. And so these tribes we're reading about settled for a known yet out-of-bounds place rather than wait for an unknown place of promise. And we, like they, we have the same rather terrible tendency to settle for less than God's best because we, like they, you know what we do? We make choices on the basis of material realities rather than spiritual realities. Material realities are those things which are seen with our eyes. Spiritual realities can only be seen through the eyes of faith. So our eyes tell us to settle what we see in the world, but our faith convictions tell us better to wait for what we've been promised in God's Word. The writer of 1 John, the Apostle John, said something pretty simple yet profound. He said, the world is passing away. That's what he said. 1 John, the world is passing away. So a Christian is someone who once, like everybody else, sought satisfaction in passing things. But now he seeks satisfaction in lasting things. I hope you see that change in your life. It's a mark of regeneration. A Christian is someone who is no longer quite as worldly. No, now he is godly. See, worldliness is the love for passing things, but godliness is the love for lasting things. Worldliness is a life lived for what we can see, and godliness is a life lived for what we cannot see with these. So what were the consequences that befell these tribes who so sadly and tragically settled for less than God's best? Well, I'll tell you one. Uh, they put themselves in tremendous jeopardy, you see. Uh, they forfeited the protection afforded by this natural barrier, the Jordan River. <laughs> it marked a boundary to the land of promise. They were on the wrong side of it, and so they removed themselves from the protection of the Jordan River. They, they, they exposed themselves to enemy attack, and so history tells us these two and a half tribes were the first ones to be conquered later on and carried off into captivity. When you and I settle for less than God's best, we do not forfeit his love, but we remove ourselves from under his wings of protection. Because he loves us, and he lets us have what we demand. And then we're out there subject to ravenous wolves and all kinds of torment. But they not only rob themselves of protection, they in going out of bounds, they, they also rob the others in their community of faith. They discouraged them. They made it acceptable for everybody to consider settling for less. Do you know your walk with Christ, the quality of it? Do you know it affects the rest of us? That's just the way it is. You're special. You are as an individual. But you, you got saved into a corporate body. 
We're the people of God. It's a community. And do you know the way one goes, it affects everybody else. They rob the congregation, uh, 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 not only of a serious intent with, with hope and confidence in God to make their way into their place of promise. What else they rob them of? Their gifts and their service. <laughs> That's what we do when we settle for, for less. We rob the church that we love and are a part of of the fullness of blessing that God is willing to pour out upon us through our service to it. When we stay on the wrong side of the place of promise. And so, let's close with this. What about you and me? Um, have you chosen to settle for less than God's best? Have I? Would you ask yourself that question? Have you chosen to settle for less than God's best? Are you stuck now? Have you stagnated? Has your, has your forward movement in the Christian life, has it been stopped? Answer that to yourself, to God who's reading your heart, even without any words on your part. Has your forward movement been stopped because you have settled for less than God's best? If so, what has to happen for you to get going again? What has to happen? I made a whole list of suggested responses and then erased it and got rid of it. It's not my business to tell you what has to happen. It's your business to reflect on it and work it out. What do you have to let go of? What have you settled for? What have you laid hands on? Because your eyes have told you, I need it. I deserve it. It's right here. It will gratify me. <gasps> I thought I had it. Now it has me. What is it? You label it. I'm not going to label it. Do the work. Say, oh, God, I want to be on the move again. I have been at times in my life. I'm stagnant now. In this new year, I want to do a new thing. I want to be free of what I had been so willing to settle for. I want to wait on you to fulfill your promises to me. I don't want to meet my own needs by giving in to what my eyes tell me to be true. I'm easily fooled. I can be deceived. It looks good. It feels good. It tastes good. It's killing me. Oh, God, I'm stuck. I've got to get rid of this relationship. Now, I didn't say marriage. If you're in it, even under difficult terms, <laughs> You look to God to sustain you in it, not to get you out of it. No, 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 no. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about non-covenantal covenantal, marriage is a covenant. All others are not. Are you in a relationship with somebody? You'd be ashamed for some of us to know about. Come on. God knows. Say, oh, God, I don't know how to extricate myself, but I must 
because it's holding me back. I'm going to do it, and with your help, I want to move forward. Is it a relationship? Is it a thing on your computer? Man, it'll kill us. Is it a pornography thing? Is it a gambling thing? I mean, it is right there in your pajamas in the privacy of your room. Nobody can know about it. You can do all kinds of stuff. But what's the consequence? You're being robbed of God's best. And I don't want to hurt you, but you're robbing the rest of us of the totality of your spirit-filled life because you're quenching the spirit. I'm not getting from you what I need to get from God through you because you're quenching the Spirit of God in you. Don't be so selfish. What do you have to give up? What do you have to leave? What's it going to take in order for you to get moving? I would like to invite you to just close your eyes for a second. This is just to avoid distractions. Just think, what's going on? How much did Jesus give of himself for you? Do you remember when you recognized it? Do you remember how excited? Remember how you told people? Remember how you couldn't wait to be part of a fellowship and serve and give and go? Remember, remember? Why are those the good old days? Remember the first love? Remember an undistracted, uninterrupted, marvelous walk with the Lord Jesus? It was like romance, wasn't it? Remember? It was like romance. You'd talk. You'd read. You'd do. He'd answer prayer. You knew he delighted in you. What happened to the romance? What happened? Can you put your finger on it? What got in the way? What choices have you made? What has you? (laughs) What have you settled for? Why don't you say, oh, God, it's not worth it? What you have for me far surpasses anything this world has to offer. It's passing away and the lusts thereof. (laughs) Oh, God, open the eyes of my heart to behold that place of promise wherein there will be pleasure and satisfaction from you forevermore. Oh, God, I've settled for much less. I'm sorry. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for loving me. Help me now to move forward. Talk to God. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your investment in our lives to such extent that you would give us a record of a people group who are just like us. 
We see in ancient Israel human nature. And then we see divine nature. Your willingness to say, I forgive. Now let's get going. Serving, praying, giving, contributing. Let's get going. Oh God, we would like to see many, many more become Christians. But I think the need of the hour is for many more Christians to look like it. Free us up so that we look like people of promise, waiting on the joys of lasting things instead of settling for the temporary gratification of passing things. On the verge of our coming into possession of a magnificent building, place of worship and growth and sending, would you ready us for it by purifying us, by creating within us a wholehearted devotion to you as our leader, a trust in you to meet our needs, and the discipline to wait for the fulfillment of your promises instead of settling for less. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.